0: Even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. WFAN and WFAN
2: FM, New York, a radio.com sports station.
3: Ay 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 ay. Yeah, I'm still trying to get over last week's show. Poof! Man, that was a busy couple of hours. Well, good morning everybody. Isn't that interesting the way I always start off this program, sometimes started off like in mid-conversation. Listen, I make the assumption that eh you know you're just sort of joining me along in life. Well, good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Brian Rascona is at the controls this Sunday morning. We're going to have a doozy of a program. In the first hour of our program, we have a guest who is joining us from National Organization for Rare Disorders, NORD, N-O-R-D. They have a very comprehensive website at Rare Diseases. That's with an S dot There's a lot of information there including some of the things we're going to be talking about with Mary Dunkel, who is NORD's education senior advisor. Uh, Mary, first of all, good morning. Welcome to our program here on The Fan. Thank you, Bob. Good morning to you, too. It's nice to have you uh, join us. You know, there are many different areas where we can go in discussion. One of the things I'm going to mention, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the course of this hour, is NORD is the official U.S. sponsor of Rare Disease Day, which is upcoming at the end of this month. We'll talk about that. But let's start at the very beginning. I always like to provide some background for folks who are listening to us, and um, some of them may be affected directly or perhaps have a loved one or family member who's affected by a rare disorder, what is the best way for you to explain what NORD is all about?
4: Well, we're all about people uh, affected by rare diseases. NORD was actually founded by rare disease patients and parents of patients because many of the patients are children. Uh, and it was, uh, established back in 1983. Uh, these, the, the problem at that time was that because these diseases are rare, nobody was really focusing on research on them or trying to develop treatments for them because, uh, companies couldn't recover their investment. Uh, it costs quite a bit of money to develop a treatment and go through the whole research process. So um, some patients and some parents of patients got together and uh, decided to try to fix that. And essentially they provided advocacy for what ultimately became a piece of legislation called the Orphan Drug Act. Uh, that that ultimately was passed by Congress and signed by President Reagan back in uh, 1983, and the the families and the uh, parents who had come together on on behalf of trying to make that happen then got together at a home in Connecticut, actually uh, near Fairfield, Connecticut, where the uh, mother lived. Abby Myers, who had been one of the primary advocates, and they essentially said, okay, we got this law passed. Are we finished now, or should we continue working together? And they decided there really was a lot of value in working together, even though they represented many different, very different types of diseases but a lot of the problems that people who have rare diseases have are are similar across the diseases. So they decided to continue working together, and that's when they formed Nord. And essentially, Nord does uh, four different types of activities. Uh, we do advocacy on public policies and things like funding for research. So, we have an office in Washington, D.C. that focuses on that. We have an office in Connecticut, which is where I have been based for 20 years now, uh, that focuses on education. And this is... You mentioned the NORD website at rarediseases.org, and we provide information that's reviewed by doctors who are experts on these diseases, but it's in language that's understandable for the patients and the families. Uh, we also are involved in trying to educate medical professionals about these diseases and always kind of trying to remind them, it, you know, if you see a patient with certain symptoms, it may not be the most obvious thing, so just kind of keep your mind open. Uh, and, and increasingly, NORD has been involved in recent years in educating students who are going into the medical professions, and we've been thrilled to see how receptive they are. This new generation of professionals is, you know, very interested in learning about the rare diseases. So we do advocacy. We do education. For many years, we have had research funds and these are anybody can donate to a fund on any for for research on any rare disease. Uh, it's mostly patients and patient organizations who uh donate to these funds. And then we have a group of medical experts at medical schools around the company who help us run a research grants program. And in many cases with these very rare diseases, it's really the only research funding that's available. Um, so, it's, it gives hope to the patients to know that there is somebody doing research on their disease. And then the fourth uh, bucket of activity is patient and family services, and that includes things like um, helping patients obtain medications that they couldn't otherwise afford.
3: This whole idea of um, NORD coming into, into existence, really, I go back to something you said at the very beginning of that answer, being established by um, rare disease patients and their parents, I mean, what was, I guess, kind of what was the initial reaction to nord if that's known at this point and mm-hmm. is is it easier getting the message out now
4: well i you know i think it is i don't know if i would say it's easier but it's definitely the the movement if if we can call it that has gained momentum over the years uh and i really tip my hat to those early founders of nord um, and I was not a part of the organization at that time, but Abby Myers, this mother in Connecticut who had children with uh, Tourette syndrome, which actually is not considered rare now, but was at that time. Uh, and and there were several others. Actually, uh, there's some New York City roots in this. Uh, Marjorie Guthrie, the widow of Woody Guthrie, the folk singer. And she was a dancer with the Martha Graham Company in New York, and Woody Guthrie had Huntington disease. Uh, So Marjorie actually was very instrumental in this early movement, too, and helped establish NORD. Um, But, you know, I think back in those early days, back in the 1980s, there really was very little uh, public awareness and understanding of the problems. Um, and very little funding, even through the federal government for research, Uh, so I I really think that sort of grassroots movement of patients and parents and spouses who came together uh, was incredibly important at that time, and I've been told stories, of course, today with the social media, the communication is very different. And much easier than it was back then, in many ways, but uh, I've been told stories about how there would be a uh, perhaps a well, a radio interview like this, or a story published in something like Reader's Digest that reached many, many people at that time, and then the Nord office would just be inundated with letters from people saying, "I'm so glad you know to find out there are other people." who are having these same kinds of problems. I felt so alone. It's so good to be able to connect with others. So for many years, even Nord ran a networking service where people could write to Nord, give Nord permission to share their names and mailing addresses with others, and then Nord would connect them with other people who had the same condition. So it's it's been a process. It's certainly uh, getting much more attention Uh, from the research community now, um, it, uh, there was one big step forward in 1989. The federal government did a big, uh, and I think this was spurred really partly by the establishment of NORD and the fact that these patients, you know, really, uh, continued to go back to Congress and to, uh, government agencies like the National Institutes of Health and, and remind folks of their needs. So in 1989, there was this big uh, federal study that was commissioned by Congress to find out what, what are the problems of these families, and one of the things that happened as a result of that was that there was a special office established at the National Institutes of Health specifically to focus on rare diseases and the needs of those families. And NORD today continues to work very closely with that, uh, with with many people at, at the NIH and some of the other uh, government institutions, but in particular that one office.
3: Mary Dunkel is NORD's Education Senior Advisor. NORD, the acronym standing for National Organization for Rare Disorders, That's uh, the focus of our discussion this first hour of our program. By the way, you know, uh, somebody who's listening to us may be struck by something that we're talking about. Perhaps you have a question. You can join us. 877-337-6666 is our number here at The Fan. Feel like they're doing a travel show. What is going on here? Everybody's always leaving here. That's right. Of course. Of course they are fine program with Evan and Joe. I'll be there listening. Make sure you are too. And good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter on our program this Sunday morning. We're in a discussion with Mary Dunkel, who is the Education Senior Advisor for NORD. NORD is an acronym standing for National Organization for Rare Disorders. I mentioned earlier the website for NORD is rare diseases. That's with an S dot O-R-G. There's a lot of people who visit that site. There's a lot of information on the website as well. Uh, Mary, there's so many things that you provided us in background in beginning our discussion, but one of the things that I wanted to focus on in um, our discussion today is talking about something that you mentioned in um, answering the initial question that I posed to you about the background on Nord. When you're talking about the uh, role that social media uh, plays today, in terms of um, creating awareness about some of the diseases, and even, I guess, is it possible, even in some of the other work that Nord does, that social media has basically an increasing role?
4: It has uh, an incredibly important role to the families that we serve, um, and and obviously, you always... We're always warning people that, you know, with, with any information that you're getting or you're sharing online, you have to be careful. You have to be sure it comes from trustworthy sources and that sort of thing, but that said, uh the opportunity to connect with other people as you can imagine if you're affected or your child is affected by some terribly rare condition that uh you get that diagnosis and it's something you've never heard of before just to be able to connect with other people and hear about their experiences and i i've seen it so many times over the years that you know parents helping newly diagnosed families and kind of walking them through that initial shock and fear and helping them see, you know, that there is life after diagnosis and we can all work together. Nord's uh, motto actually is, alone we are rare, together we are strong. Uh, And and one thing that we see happen, and I, I just have so much admiration for the families that we work with, uh, but often we'll see somebody's child, for instance, gets a diagnosis, and that family, uh, will connect with others, and even though it may be an incredibly rare condition, they'll create some sort of web presence, uh, you know, maybe a very simple website. Often the, you know, the teenage kids in the family help them put together the website. And then they'll find a doctor and the the medical experts that we work with are so generous in sharing their time with these families because they understand that, you know, the, the isolation and the special challenges. So they'll get a medical expert to, you know, perhaps answer questions through their website or help them review their information to make sure it's accurate. Uh, and, you know, just to think about the difference between what it was like back in the 1980s to get one of these diagnoses and then today to be able to connect not just with people in the U.S. but around the world because sometimes with some of these diseases, you know, there may just be a few dozen people all around the world who have that particular diagnosis. Uh, One thing that we have seen over the years is the number of diseases continues to go up as new ones are identified and many of these uh, are genetic diseases or have a genetic component and many of them increasingly today what we're seeing are, you know, very specific genetic mutations and for those families to be able to connect through social media with others is just tremendously helpful and important to them.
3: Well, then they have a sense that they're they're not alone because exactly. know, when something is so rare that maybe there's 12 people in the world who mm-hmm. are affected by this. I mean, you got to start to feel. First of all, the natural reaction is why me or why my child. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, what can we really do about this? Or what help is there really for this? And, you know, to go back to something you said earlier and with some of the information I was reading in preparation for our discussion today, I mean, I believe the figure is it's more than 7,000 rare diseases and the majority of overwhelming majority of those are without any FDA-approved treatment or therapy.
4: That's right, and the number of diseases uh, does continue to go up. I when I joined Nord in 1999, uh, the National Institutes of Health at that time was citing 5,000. Uh, diseases considered rare in the U.S. And then at some point over the years, it went up to 6,000, and now, as you say, it's more than 7,000. And only, I don't know the exact number, you know, right right at this moment, but it's somewhere between 500 and 600 of those diseases have FDA-approved treatments. Mm. Uh, so we have a lot of work to do. Uh, so many, many of the diseases in past years were not uh, the subject of any research at all, which means there's not even any hope of a treatment on the horizon. Now, thanks uh, in large part to patients, and there are many, many wonderful patient organizations specific to these diseases, uh, and they have uh, many times built they'll raise funds for research and find uh researchers and and actually actively work to interest them in their diseases and even through I mentioned that nord has research grants and these are in the world of medical research these are not large grants by any means the you know typical one is uh, in the range of maybe 30 to 40,000 dollars for a study, but I know of at least two cases over the years where those small grants funded by patients and patient organizations have led ultimately to FDA-approved products.
3: Mm. Earlier in this discussion, I mentioned Rare Disease Day and the fact that NORD is the official U.S. sponsor of Rare Disease Day. What's the... um, I guess the focus of the day. How did that come about?
4: The the focus is really just awareness and education. And it started in Europe back in two thousand eight. Nord has a partner organization, a similar organization that represents uh the entire rare disease community in Europe. It's Uh, the European Organization for Rare Diseases, or Eurortis. And they actually did the first Rare Disease Day back in 2008, and it it was a good start. Uh, And then they came to NORD and asked if we would introduce it in the U.S. in 2009, which we did, and it's just been growing every year since then. Uh, and it really is, I, speaking of social media, a lot of what's going on related to rare diseases happens there. So, you don't necessarily have to, you know, go somewhere to an event, although there are many events planned, uh, but NOR uses the hashtag Rare Disease Day, or we also use a hashtag Show Your Stripes, And the reason for that is that the zebra is a symbol of rare diseases. Years ago in medical school, uh, young uh, medical students were taught, when you hear hoofbeats, don't assume it's a zebra, it's most likely a horse. And so Nord kind of has turned that around and we say to students and medical professionals, don't forget that it might be a zebra when you hear hoofbeats. So the zebra has become one of our symbols and we're encouraging everyone to wear stripes on rare disease day, which is always on the last day of February. This year, it's uh, particularly meaningful because in a leap year, it's that ultimate rare day, February 29th, Um, and there are many events. A lot of schools do events. A lot of, you know, parents of children with rare conditions work with their children's teachers to do educational events in the classroom to help other students understand why that child may have some differences. A lot of, um, academic institutions, and and hospitals uh, do awareness events, tabling events, and that sort of thing. And there are also events in uh, legislative office buildings around the country, including one, uh, there's a uh, New York legislative event taking place in Albany on February 27th, from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. It's free. Everybody's welcome. It's just a chance for parents, medical professionals, uh, patients, and others to come together and meet with their state legislators and promote awareness there of uh, rare diseases and the challenges that these families face. So, that will be taking place uh, at the Legislative Office Building in Albany. The New York Police Department also is doing its second annual Rare Disease Day event, and there will be police officers who have children with rare conditions, promoting awareness of of their children's conditions and disease, rare diseases in general. And that's taking place on the 28th. The event in Albany actually is uh, being hosted by a group that Nord started called the Rare Action Network, and this is just a. These are groups of volunteers, patients, parents, caregivers, professionals in states all around the country, and they uh, work to promote awareness within their state. Mm. So, any anybody interested in learning more about that could go to the website rareaction.org or they can just go to the NORD website and look for information about the Rare Action Network and how to join.
3: And the NORD website is rarediseases with an S.org. We're talking with Mary Dunkel. Mary is NORD, and that's the National Organization for Rare Disorders. Uh, she is the uh, education senior advisor, and she's our guest this hour of our program uh, here on the Fan. Um, there's many different things that pop in my mind based on some of the things that you're sharing with us in our discussion. In um, the home stretch of our program, I want to touch upon um, something that's, that I believe you alluded to earlier, and I think it's a natural uh, question when you talk about. Um, Medical professionals, med school students, and that is what exposure, if any, um, and if you know this, I don't even know if you do know it or not, do they get any exposure to, um, you know, rare diseases, rare disorders as part of their curriculum? I want you to touch upon that. We're going to take a pause uh, and do a few messages, get our latest sports update. We'll let you uh, touch upon that. And, um some other things I want to get into and in talking about some of the advocacy efforts of Nord as we continue on our program this Sunday morning. It's Sunday morning, on the fan. Good morning, everybody. This is Bob Salter. Thank you for joining us on our program today. We're in a discussion talking about the work of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. It goes by the acronym nord n o r d. Comprehensive website at Rare dis- Diseases that's with an S.org. Uh Rare Disease Day comes up at the end of this month on the 29th. As well in our discussion, we're talking with Mary Dunkel. Mary is the education senior advisor for Nord, and she's joined us on our program. What I mentioned earlier, too, is um, you want to join us in the discussion. You know, sometimes there are people who listen to shows that we do that um, can identify very much with some of the things that are being said Uh, perhaps there's somebody in your family a loved one or you yourself are impacted by um, one of these um, rare disorders you can join us in our discussion 877-337-6666 is our number here at the fan and um, we'll get to some folks on the phone in just a moment but i posed a question to you mary that has been bouncing around in my head the entire time that we've been talking. And that is about the exposure in curricula that med school students might get about rare disorders or rare diseases. Is there any sort of indication as to whether they even get exposed to it?
4: They do, and and I do think it's increasing, although, obviously, with more than 7,000 diseases, it's, you know, maybe not so much a matter of of exposure to specific uh, diseases, but more the mindset of, you know, being aware that there are these many, many diseases. Sometimes they look like more common things, um, so, you know, just keep your mind open sort of attitude. Um and, and NORD has been very active on campuses, too. We uh, work with the students to develop student chapters of NORD, and we go to uh, conferences for medical students. Uh, and I, I personally have found this very moving. We've invited patients or parents to come and be in the booth with us, and when the students come to our booth, then they can hear firsthand from a patient or a parent. And I've gotten so many emails after those meetings uh, <clears throat> Excuse me, from students saying how much it meant to them to be able to meet, you know, to, to talk one-on-one to someone affected by one of these diseases. And essentially it's something they'll remember for their entire career.
3: Are there typical questions that they approach you with
4: no, I just I think the thing that's so um exciting to me and and so encouraging for the future is how interested these students are and how they they really get it that mm-hmm. there are many many of these diseases um and that it's important to stay alert to them as getting a, an accurate diagnosis obviously is uh, can be a very long, difficult process for many of these families. Um, so, just the fact that students are aware and interested and they're coming to us and asking for help in establishing chapters. So, I see that as a very hopeful sign for the future.
3: Well, it's interesting, too, I'm, I'm listening as you're saying that and thinking, you know, part of their their profession, but part of their whole education process is something that is basically lifelong learning. Um, So, (laughs) you know, you would think that any opportunity to gain more information uh, would be perfect. So that's very encouraging to hear. Tell you what, let's go to the phone, 877-337-6666 is our number here at the fan. We'll go first to uh, Jerry in Brooklyn. Jerry, good morning. Thanks for holding on. Good
1: morning, Bob. Uh, Mary, you picked the right person and the right show to come on uh, for awareness. I could tell you that I've listened to Bob Salter for so many years, probably more years than either one of us want to admit to. <laughs> but, <laughs> and uh, I worked 38 years uh, working with people with disabilities, and you inspired uh-huh. me to call. Um, just, uh, you know, when, when I hear things, I work for an organization that's over 70 years old. And it was founded by an Ann Greenberg. I'm not going to mention uh, the name of the organization because this is about uh, Nord. Um, Seventy years ago, she got tired of hearing your child is not normal and will never be able to learn anything. He or she will be a burden to you and your family. Institutionalize him or her now. And Bob, you were mentioning about uh, medical school and a curriculum. Too bad they didn't institute back then bedside manner. Um, she got tired of hearing that, um, she had a five-year-old child. She put a two, it was two lines in a classified ad section in the New York Times, and a few parents responded, and within a year, word of mouth, you know, and and they spread it, and today it's a monster program uh, for people with disabilities, and I thought another mom that just would not accept no for an answer and i guess that's just another reason why we celebrate mother's day and um so so when i hear stuff like that i'm so inspired and it just makes me feel good and and that's really all i wanted to say please be well both of you thanks bob
3: thank you very much for your call this morning jerry would you like to respond at all to what jerry shared with us mary
4: sure and thank you so much jerry for calling and i yeah i loved his comments about mothers we actually. do a lot of social media posting uh, around Mother's Day because, as as Jerry noted, we see and fathers too, but it, it seems like in many cases it's those mothers who just won't take no for an answer, uh, who really make good things happen for both for their own children and for other children with that same condition.
3: Mm. Now, when we're talking about the advocacy efforts of NORD that you alluded to earlier in our discussion, one of the things that I naturally think of is this whole idea of trying to advocate with those who can, when you get right down to it, provide research funds. Mm -hmm. And um, here we're talking about lawmakers, legislators. The skeptical side of me is always present here, so I'll ask the question that a lot of folks listening to this program on a regular basis have heard me pose in similar interview situations. When NORD pleads its case, or pleads the case of those who are dealing with rare disorders, to legislators, to policymakers, is anybody listening?
4: Yes, uh, they are, although, you know, it's it's definitely a case that we need to keep pleading, and this upcoming year will be no, no difference in that. I think uh, this is uh, really a situation where there is tremendous value in people with rare diseases coming together uh, through NORD to plead their case together. Uh, because, you know, when you think about it, if you have one of these diseases affecting a few dozen people around the country or around the world, your voice is not going to be heard mm-hmm. when when questions related to research funding come up. But if you can come together uh, with others and say, you know, we are rare, we are the rare community, and we're important, and we... Deserve you know some hope for the future too, and uh, I I think there is great value in that. Nord has some um, a uh, an event each year in the spring where we honor a, a, an awards dinner and we honor folks who have done outstanding things uh, the previous year or over the years, and several times over the years that has included. Uh, folks from the federal government, members of Congress, others who have done particular things uh, to, you know, really help, and in particular to help assure uh, that these diseases are not forgotten when research funding is allocated.
3: Mm. One of the things that impressed me when I was visiting the um, website rarediseases.org was the way in which there's material made available, and it's frankly in various forms of uh, media, that can be um, a resource not only for patients, but also, and this is an important aspect of the discussion for their caregivers.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Why is that so crucial?
4: Well, a, crucial is absolutely the right word. I, you know, I think what we see over and over again is when somebody gets one, uh, this, one of these diagnoses for themselves or their child or their spouse, the first thing they want to do is educate themselves. Uh, About that condition so they can be good advocates for themselves or their loved ones, and that's such an admirable thing, and we really want to support it, and so we work very, very hard to provide information uh, that is accurate, uh, that is not needlessly frightening, but also doesn't We don't ever want to give, you know, false hope or a falsely um, rosy picture of the situation. Uh, But just to provide that necessary information and we get... The the information on our website typically is written by uh, members of our staff. We have a genetic counselor on staff who oversees our rare disease database of written reports, and she's been with NORD for more than 20 years, and I'm sure could have been making more money and you know, had a different type of professional career, but she's so devoted to that database and to providing information that's helpful to the families, uh, and we get incredible support from doctors at medical schools around the country who don't get paid for doing this, but just volunteer their time to review our information to make sure it's accurate. And uh, some of these diseases are named for the uh, doctor or the medical researcher who first identified the condition. And in some cases, it's that person uh, who is reviewing the NORD reports. So we we really try to get the leading, the best expert on each topic. Uh, but, you know, we just, we admire the work that the patients and families do, and we want to do whatever we can to facilitate that and to, to make it possible for them to be good advocates for themselves and others.
3: I don't know if we mentioned this earlier in our discussion. For some reason, I'm thinking we didn't, Mary, and one of the things I had noted when I was looking at um, your website earlier, when talking about Rare Disease Day, and that's next Saturday, the twenty ninth. I believe I saw that, and this is in Washington D.C. If I'm correct, there's an event. It's called a family event at the International Spy Museum. Is that right?
4: That's right, and that's uh, this is the first year Nord has done that event. Uh, It's open to all, and it is happening on the actual day of Rare Disease Day, the 29th, and you can uh, read about that. If you're going to be anywhere near the Washington, D.C. area, you're more than uh, welcome to join that event,
1: too.
3: We get people listening from literally all parts of the country, and in some cases all parts of the world, uh, to this program There's a whole lot of people who listen to this show on a um, delayed basis through some of the things with radio.com, and uh, people use that radio.com app and use the rewind feature and go back and listen to different things uh, during the show, too, which is kind of a handy and neat thing, some of the feedback they get from folks, so um, it's quite possible that some of the folks in that area might be interested in um, taking part in something like that if they were interested. So I wanted to mention that. Now, before we wrap up in our discussion, and we've covered an awful lot of things here, what would you say to folks who are listening to us about where it is, I guess, that NORD as an organization is headed? What do you want them to take away from our experience? We have about a minute or so left here.
4: Well, I think I would uh, go back to this slogan I mentioned, mm-hmm. alone we are rare, together we are strong. And I would encourage anyone who has a connection to a rare disease, uh, a friend with a rare disease, um, or, or just an interest, uh, to, to come to the NORD website at org and to consider getting involved in some way. And this could either be uh, through the various types of NORG programs that I mentioned, or through this Rare Action Network that we sponsor in the states. And you can uh, get involved with other people in your state and help uh, to raise awareness within your own state too.
3: You also mentioned the Rear Action Network's website. Would you just repeat that?
4: Yes. Uh, and and you can also find it if you go to the Nord site. There's uh, a link to it there, but it's at rareaction.org.
3: And the Nord website is Rare Diseases with an S.org. Mary Dunkel, very kind, Nord's education senior advisor. Thanks so much for joining us on our program, Mary. Thank you, Bob, and thanks
4: so much for your interest in rare diseases.
3: Wonderful discussion, and uh, hopefully we provided some good information for some of the folks listening to us. Again, Rare Disease Day is next Saturday, the 29th. Certainly the best continued with your efforts. Well, that's our one of our program. We like to call it a fun fest. Hey, stick around. You'll find out exactly why. We've got another guest joining us. Should have a very lively discussion as we move into our 7 o'clock hour this Sunday morning.
1: WFAN and WFAN-FM New York, a Radio.com sports station.
3: You know, it seems like everywhere I go around here, I'm seeing radio.com. What is this? Everywhere here, I'm surrounded by radio.com. You are too. Trust me, you are too. And by the way, if you haven't done it before now, here's the day to do it. Get the radio.com app. It's got that rewind feature on there. You can listen to any WFAN program you've missed over the past 24 hours. It's a really neat thing to have. Just saying. You would want to have that handy, by the way. With the Sports Edge program that's coming up after our 8 o'clock sports update. Well, this hour of our program, I've been looking forward to for some time because we were scheduled to speak with the gentleman who is joining us on our program earlier this year. And unfortunately, I was under the weather at one point. I think there was one point when he was under the weather. Um, So we finally have gotten connected here to have a good discussion with Mitch Rose. Mitch is president, chief executive officer, and a trustee of the Woodlawn Cemetery and Conservancy in the Bronx. Now, some of you are thinking, what is he going to talk about with Mitch? Well, stick around. There's lots to get to. Mitch, good morning. Welcome to our program on WFAN.
2: Thank you. Good morning, Bob. And I'm glad we're both uh, feeling better. Yes. A lot of flu yes. went around this yeah. year and
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> something it's, happened. It's nice to be healthy. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. I guess let will start off a little bit of background about um, Woodlawn. Uh, you know, I say Woodlawn Conservancy. Um, some people may know what the Conservancy is all about. Um, others may hear the word cemetery and think the focus is there. Um, how do you explain what it's about?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So about 20 years ago, Woodlawn uh, established a 501c3, which is, as you stated, the Conservancy. A uh, 501c3's orientation is about education, educating the community in a big way. And because Woodlawn Cemetery uh, is a National Historic Landmark, uh, you know it's a very beautiful landscape, not only from the context of the fact that it's a level two arboretum. Uh, we also have historical structures out there, many mausoleums, there's over a thousand mausoleums designed by famous architects. There's landscapes designed by famous landscape architects. So the uh, relationship is to utilize the cemetery in a way that provides educational programming from field trips to workforce development to social media, uh, woodlawn connections, as we call it, launching them out, and and then some big signature events, which just give the opportunity for uh, the community at large to see how valuable this national historic landmark can be from an educational perspective.
3: Now, to put things in perspective, according to what I was reading in preparation for our discussion today, it goes back to 1863, the That's correct. Or, origin of Woodlawn Cemetery, is that right?
2: That's correct, 1863, so we're over 150 years old.
3: Mm. How did it get started?
2: So the cemetery uh, industry back then uh, in 1863 was uh, very different. Most of the cemeteries were what you would call a rural uh, cemetery where uh, the environment of the cemetery was set up with small family uh, sections or plots with multiple internment sites. And you think back to 1863, people weren't moving all over the country. Uh, There was a far less uh, mobile uh, part of of community. So people lived, grew up, and passed away in the same area. So cemeteries had a little different relevance back then. Uh, people would go to the cemetery to pay their respects to their great, great, great uh, grandmother, or whatever the case may be. So, cemetery got started uh, in the North Bronx, uh, uh, you know, all the way up by Woodlawn Heights neighborhood, mm-hmm. and it was a very uh, great development for the for the area because at that time. Uh, that area was really popping. I mean, the beginning of uh, uh, cemeteries in the northern Bronx area was to some extent driven by some of the cemeteries that were literally removed from Manhattan.
3: Mm. And I guess in keeping the cemetery active and viable through the years, what's that experience been like?
2: So the cemetery itself is 400 acres, and uh, it's huge in terms of its operational needs. Uh, we're still an active cemetery, uh, absolutely. So there's people buying cemetery property. We're serving over 3,000 families annually, whether it be the cremation, which we offer, or uh, utilization of the burial plots. So that's been a thriving aspect of it. But that said, there's probably about 15 or 20 acres left uh, of space that would actually be utilized for full-size burial. So we're kind of Going this other direction additionally or in a parallel way will always be an active cemetery, but we also want to go ahead and create a different kind of relevance. And that's, to your point earlier, that's exactly what the Conservancy does.
3: How do you go about doing that?
2: Uh, with a lot of good partners, uh, <laughs> because it's not really something we understood very much. We started with it with some walking tours, for instance, you know, walk amongst the trees, walk amongst the architecture. We have a fabulous uh, historian who has done a great job with a lot of volunteers doing a tremendous amount of research of the individuals that are interred at Woodlawn, and then again, the architecture and the various aspects that make it a unique property. Uh, but our biggest partner that really kind of changed the changed the rules for us was the World Monuments Fund uh and the uh, uh as well as a collaboration with the bricklayers and allied crafts workers local 1 union and what i'm talking about here is workforce development so several years ago we launched a program 10 week program where we bring young men and women into our cemetery and under the uh guidance of a resident craftsman, a retired union worker, they learn stonemasonry and the professional uh, aspects associated with that with some big certifications. They get out OSHA 30 certification, uh, scaffolding certification, and we're pretty proud to say that we've actually turned out 83 young men and women through this program Uh, And the retention rate and the amount of them moving into the union is significant, about 20%, 25% end up right in the bricklayers' union. So for lack of a better uh, description, we're creating union jobs at Woodlawn.
3: And those have got to be pretty nice union jobs, too.
2: Very good, and, and high demand. Mm-hmm. As you know, uh, as we all know, there's some significant structures all throughout Manhattan and the Bronx and Queens, and etc., and these structures need attention. Uh, namely, when you look at a structure, you, you, you see the stone, but it's the, it's the masonry, uh, you know, it's the repointing in between. It's the mortar in between. That requires a fair amount of work. Uh, preservation and effort to make sure it's secure so the buildings hold up Uh, and that they learn when the folks come in, essentially what they're learning is the core of construction. So a lot of our our graduates end up in some aspect of the construction field, whether it be masonry or whether it just be general construction. So it's a really uh, exciting program for us. We're five years in. We raise money for it. It's expensive. Uh, So we get a lot of wonderful grant funders from uh, foundations that are out there interested in supporting young men and women getting good jobs and very sustainable jobs.
3: And how does that also promote, I guess, diversity in that field?
2: Well, it absolutely promotes diversity because we're the Bronx, so 55% Spanish speaking in the Bronx. Uh, A lot of our uh, young men and women who join our program, uh, English could be a second language to them. Uh, they're not necessarily, in most cases, perhaps college-bound. So they come on to our program, and just by given the dynamics of where we are, that's what ends up happening a, a diversified workforce moves into the union and that's what the union wanted to and they saw that as well and it actually goes back even deeper we are very involved with the school system on multiple levels we have a, uh, a cohort program and, uh, with interns uh, through the department of education summer youth employment program as well as a program with the CTE schools so throughout the course of the year It's not just these workforce development young men and women. There's about another 75 or so that come through and do various projects in the cemetery, research projects that we develop, where they do studies, where they use some of the technical and technological uh, components that are associated today with historic preservation. So we bring them in early. Uh, In fact, we go even deeper, we we bring them in for field trips, almost 2,000 young men and women come through our field trip programs and tour the cemetery with a curriculum-based programmatic uh, theme so they learn about the history and the legacy of the notables that are buried here, and then hopefully come away with some energy and insight as to what they can do with their lives and how many people who are interred at Woodlawn, many famous, notable people, didn't start out that way. They started out with some, some tremendous odds against them, and they overcame those odds, and they created a legacy. So we use the notables as kind of an inspirational component for the young men and women who come through the field trips.
3: Mm, I would imagine that they do cite that as something that is, inspires them at times.
2: Absolutely. I mean, when you, you know, for instance, uh, uh, Celia Cruz, so Celia Cruz is uh, interred at Woodlawn, and she's certainly very famous for uh, being the queen of salsa as as she has noted and She was inspirational; she was an immigrant, and she came in uh, from Cuba uh, and ultimately won uh, a Grammy she, you know Grammy winning award artist, so she went through a lot of uh, challenges uh, during the period of Fidel Castro in Cuba. But she's buried at the cemetery, and what we've done, I think this will be our third year doing it, is we actually offer a three- or four-day event where we use uh, one of our buildings on site, set it up like a museum. People come through and see all the different artifacts of her life, uh, the dresses, the uh, uh, various uh, memorabilia and paraphernalia from her award-winning events. Uh, We show video. Uh, The dresses, by the way, are off the charts, or like a dozen dresses. And she was very flamboyant and very, you know, as many celebrities are, had some tremendous, uh, uh, you know, outfits and things of that nature. So we had about 3,000 people, Bob, come through over a four-day event, through the building, looking at all this stuff, remembering various times they saw her, perhaps, when she was alive. And then on Sunday, at the end of the event, We do a salsa concert right at the cemetery. We had about 2,000 people come to that concert, and everything I just said is free. It's supported through the effort of the 501C3, and that's really what makes uh, uh, the C3 different and unique in the context of what we offer to the community.
3: Mitch Rose, who's president, chief executive officer, trustee of Woodlawn, is talking with us on our program on the fan this Sunday morning. After our 8 o'clock update, it is Rick Wolf, who's along with the Sports Edge program here on the fan. After our 9 o'clock update, Ed Randall is by, talking baseball. We are in a discussion with Mitch Rose. Mitch is president, chief executive officer, trustee of the Woodlawn Cemetery and Conservancy in the Bronx. And um, there's so many different things to cover in the course of this discussion. Um, with you. You provided us with some good information, first part of our discussion. I also wanted to mention the fact that for folks who are listening to our program, you know, you can join us at any point in the show if you have a thought or comment along the lines of what we're talking about. 877-337-6666 is our number. And let's go to uh, Mary on Long Island, who has joined us. Mary, good morning. Welcome to the fan.
5: Good morning, Bob. Good morning, Mr. Rose. Um, this is a fascinating subject, and when you first announced it, um, I thought, ooh, what are they going to talk about? But there's a lot <laughs> to talk about. Exactly. Um, I have a few points I hope you don't mind, and I'll try to be brief. Um, number one, I, I love this program for training young people for jobs. It's, it's amazing. Um, are, is this done around the country, or is yours the first cemetery to do this?
2: We're the first cemetery to do it. I think it's been done, certainly, in the context of this scale, we're the first to do it. And I should say, too, and I neglected to mention earlier, we do it very well because of our partners, and one of our partners is the World Monument Fund, and they have a mission to do preservation across the world, but our local partner is The Door, and The Door is a social service agency that provides wraparound support services for young people all through New York City, career support, resume writing, even job placement. So those two partners are really what make this thing work for us.
5: It's perfect. It really is, because you know it's almost like it's in memory of these people who this is their final resting place their their existence in a sense is going on by helping others through you and and the efforts of of the organizations um i i also loved what you said about um you know it's a community place and and you bring the community together Uh, i would assume this teaches respect which you know probably a lot of people already have. But I know that there's a problem with vandalism at cemeteries. So something like this, I would hope, cuts down on that.
2: That could be the case. I would hope so, too. And to your point, it's amazing when these young uh, 18 to uh, 24-year-old women and men come to the cemetery to to spend 10 weeks training Uh, every day. Uh, It's a full-time job. And to your point, they do develop a completely different perspective on what a cemetery is. Uh, We have over 150,000 monuments throughout the cemetery, and they're every type of stone imaginable, uh, from marble to granite to different forms of of limestone. So these are exactly the types of uh, opportunities that they will present that they'll find in the workforce. So we've become the lab, if you will, the opportunity under the, under the craftsmen to learn how to work on these stones. But to your point, there's a great level of respect. These are monuments. These are, these are the, uh, memories of, uh, individuals interred here. And it does, it is a game changer. I hope we are making an impact beyond just giving them a skill set, but we're, we're increasing their respect for the, the value of a cemetery.
5: It's, it's well appreciated. Um, do you have time for one other question or not? I don't want to hold other people back. Go ahead. Um, one thing, my friends and I are always joking about the fact that, you know, you know we continue to tend our loved one's graves, and um, other members of the family, you know, go maybe Christmas and Mother's Day, but not other holidays or special days. And, you know, you start to worry, well, if we move um, or, or if something happens to us, you want that to go on. Um, does the Cemetery have any program um, where people can, like, leave money in a fund so that their loved one's grave can still be honored on special days?
2: Absolutely, we do. Uh, they are done on an annual basis, or they're done on what's called an endowment, where, uh, a, you know, a sum of money is placed in a trust And it is to do what you just said, perhaps place flowers or a Christmas wreath or a begonia border on any particular uh, point of the year. Uh, So most cemeteries have this, Woodlawn has this, certainly, and it is done.
5: Well, thank you for answering my questions, and thank you for the work that you're doing, and thank you, Bob, for a great guest.
3: Thank you very much for your call and your comments, too. Thank you. Mary. Thank you for joining us on our program. 877-337-6666. You want to join in our discussion with Mitch Rose. Mitch is president, chief executive officer, trustee of the Woodlawn Cemetery and Conservancy in the Bronx. A couple things that come to mind. um, We've got other areas to go in discussion. One thing we haven't done thus far. Would you mention the um, online site for people who perhaps want to check out what we're talking about?
2: Absolutely. It's woodlawn.org. Simply woodlawn.org. Org. Org.
3: And there's a lot of information uh, on that site. What did it mean for Woodlawn? What has it meant for Woodlawn having that national historic landmark status?
2: So that actually uh, is a great honor. There's about I think seven other cemeteries in the country that are national historic landmarks, and there probably won't be any more. Uh, the National Park Service gave us that award because of the fact that we have the largest collection of funerary art uh, on our landscape lawn setting in the country. So that's what I mentioned earlier, about 150,000 monuments. Uh, it's over 1,300 private mausoleums. And the landscape lawn effect, for those of you uh, who have been to Woodlawn, you once you come, you see this kind of meandering road system where there's an integration of not only the monuments and the mausoleums, but the large urban forest of 6,200 trees that are scattered through the cemetery as well. So it creates a very aesthetic setting. When we became a National Historic Landmark, that actually was a game changer for us in 2011 because it also means we have a big responsibility. And it was, to some extent, what helped drive us into this workforce development area to help preserve the... Great, wonderful assets that are throughout the cemetery—the the wonderful stone, the trees, etc.—do require a great deal of care. So, winning that award from the Park Service was a big thing for us, and we take it with uh, uh, great respect. So, these kinds of programs draw attention to the community at large at how significant that is, and obviously, we by creating that visibility. We build a community of supporters. You, you mentioned the website. We have about 40,000 Facebook followers. Go find us on Facebook. And on Facebook, what we do is we draw the connections of history, woodlawn connections, to current events. And it's fascinating. It's an interesting way to learn history. And, and like I said, 40,000 followers. We must be doing something right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was thinking as you said that. I mean, that's, that's a lot of people. Um, Hmm. But then again, you know, social media really, really big, and quite frankly, um, this is the way in which people communicate.
2: It's and to our you know to our mission, it's a way to tell the relevance of a cemetery. I, anybody who has a loved one buried at Woodlawn, well, there's an absolute. Permanent relevance, of course, the family legacy is there, but a lot of young people today uh, don't necessarily understand what a cemetery meant or used to mean or should mean for that matter. so by creating these connections and drawing history, we uh, you know bringing history to a to a kind of a different point uh, it's unique we for instance, every year we hold an event at Herman Melville well. Herman Melville, of course, uh, you know, wrote Moby Dick, amongst many other uh, uh, great books. He's buried at Woodlawn. And there's a Herman Melville Society, and every year they come to Woodlawn, and we host an event where there is reading various uh, excerpts of the wonderful novels he wrote are read at his gravesite. And we Facebook Live the event uh, for people who can't be there. And we have a celebration, a celebration of what he did and what his contribution was, similar to the one I said with Celia Cruz. And we also do jazz. We have tremendous jazz, uh, greats buried at Woodlawn, uh, Duke Ellington, Miles Davis. And our relationship with uh, jazz at Lincoln Center has afforded us the, the opportunity to have these very large jazz concerts at the cemetery. And this uh, June... We're going to have another one, uh, once again, from Victor Goins uh, and friends who are going to come out and play uh, jazz music. Uh, in this particular case, they're going to be portrait pieces that are going to mirror the historic tributes of the figures from the Harlan Renaissance composed by Duke Ellington. And uh, Victor has been kind enough to write the piece. He's going to write the piece that's going to be called the Woodlawn Suite. So we're going to have a piece of music that he's writing that will tribute the jazz greats buried at Woodlawn. What, a, what a, a neat way to illuminate the significance of Duke Ellington and the relevance today of how he's still impacting lives.
3: Mm. Now, some people who are listening to our discussion will think, a jazz concert <laughs> at Woodlawn?
2: Well... I think they should come because thousands of people do. And by the way, just for picture purposes, we have a very large open segment of the cemetery. It's an open field, and it is where the concert is held. So they're not, you know, stepping all over internments or something like that. It's essentially a green space that we've opened up at the Jerome side and maintained availability for this type of setup. And... When we've had the jazz concert uh, a few years ago at the 150th and Wynton Marsalis came out, he said exactly what you just said. Why would you have a jazz concert? And he told us why. Because the influences of the people that he respected on his personal life that made him a musician were buried at Woodlawn. So what better place to have a jazz concert? What better place to pay respect illuminate the legacy of individuals that are buried there, and do it in a manner that brings forth all other individuals a a better understanding. You may have not heard Miles Davis' music. Uh, Maybe you've never even heard Duke, Duke Ellington. I suspect you probably have, but there are a lot of individuals who haven't. So for them to come to the cemetery... Uh, go to the gravesite, which we have our trolley where you can go to the gravesite and place a flower or pay your respects, and then have it culminate with a concert that's based on illuminating the memory of uh, that individual. And you mentioned diversity. Woodlawn has always been a non sectarian cemetery, non denominational. Anybody has been welcome to be buried at Woodlawn. And Woodlawn obviously opened its arms to Harlem. And the Harlem Renaissance and the Harlem Greats uh, and all that activity, those individuals ultimately passed, and many of them are actually buried at Woodlawn.
3: Let's go to the phone here before we pause um, for sports update and messages. We'll go to Stan in Brooklyn, who has joined us. Stan, good morning. Welcome to the fan.
2: Good morning. I really enjoyed your shows. Thank you. Um, I was checking to see, I, I am the partnership director for LaSalle Academy High School in the Lower East Side of New York. And we uh, run, uh, I try to plan a lot of tours to various landmarks
1: in the city environs. And I'm checking to see, do you offer programs for high school students with guided tours where they could see the architectural uh, features of the cemetery and the grave sites and
2: get them exposed to these musicians? Because um, it sounds like a wonderful place to visit. Yeah, thank you. And absolutely. If you go to our website, you can act, uh, request information. We offer private tours, public tours. We have a, a plethora of regular tours that are all listed. Um, but to your point, about 1,600, uh, mostly middle schools, middle schoolers, come through the cemetery. But we can craft and create any kind of uh, program you want, whether it's uh, slanted into an architectural element or slanted more into a notable element. Uh, we're going to do a big Earth Day celebration where we uh, have a, uh, a variety of events on April 22nd, uh, which is open to the schools. So we have a lot of uh, field trips that come in that day. And we, you know, we do a tree planting, tree maintenance, and things of that nature. We're actually launching this fall. Another uh, program for workforce development, which is in landscape restoration and landscape preservation, 30 young men and women are going to come into that program at the end of the year. So this year we're going to have 50, 50 young men and women going through our workforce development. But wow. to your point, absolutely, we do all kinds. Of, whatever you want, we pretty much can probably put it together. <laughs> oh, great, great, great. My second question is can you give me the notable people that are buried there besides uh, Herman Melville? Uh, well, so there's a huge amount. It kind of depends on what you're, what you're thinking about or what you're interested in. So Mayor LaGuardia is is buried there, and obviously that may right. mean something to some people. Sure. Ralph sure. Bunch is buried there as well, oh, and he's right. a particular uh, unique individual and obviously mm-hmm. uh, won the Nobel Prize, right. I believe. Uh, and then we have immigrants uh, like, of course, Celia Cruz is an immigrant, Dr. Noguchi, Is another immigrant that we're proud of having. He did a lot of studying, uh, you know, in science for yellow fever way back when. Uh, There are also people that uh, made a big impact in the women's movement. So Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Alba wow. Belmont are buried there, and they were actually the architects of the women's suffragist movement to Absolutely. give women the right to vote, and that's a big deal for us. Uh, in fact, we uh, like to promote that because we right. promote, if you go to the website, you kind of see we, sure. whatever particular month it is, if it's Black History Month, if it's Women's History Month, etc., uh, we, we try to promote all the resting individuals and notables and make it make it interesting for everybody.
3: Stan, thank def- you so much def- for the information. Definitely check out the website. Thank you very much for your call this morning. We've got to take a pause Bye-bye. in our discussion. We're talking with Mitch Rose on our program on the face. After our 8 o'clock update this morning, it is Rick Wolf, who's along with the Sports Edge program. Ed Randall is by Talking Baseball after our 9 o'clock update. We are in a discussion with Mitch Rose on our program. Mitch is president, chief executive officer, trustee of the Woodlawn Cemetery and Conservancy in the Bronx on the web at Woodlawn, that's W-O-O-D-L-A-W-N, that's all as one word, .org. He O-R-G. shared an awful lot with us thus far in our discussion. You want to join us? We can. 877-337-6666 is our phone number. One of the things I wanted to ask you about as well, in um, our chat today, is about Camp Woodlawn. Tell us about that, would
2: you? Yeah, absolutely. So Camp Woodlawn is uh, obviously uh, for our youngest, uh, youngest folks, and it's set up during the summer. You know, Woodlawn is uh, perfect for an educational camp, and in this particular case what they do is uh, or during a four-week program, Children uh, from grades 1 through 7 come onto our site, our 400-acre site, and we make it a a learning camp experience. So we utilize history and the past achievements of Woodlawn Notables to try to inspire the young uh, young boys and girls into thinking uh, outside of the box of what they could do. Of course, like any traditional camp, we have uh, outdoor time, so there's a, a arts and crafts programs and reading workshops. We, we certainly utilize the trees and do tree identification uh, programs. And we really started this a few years ago kind of thinking, well, I don't know what this is really going to do or be attractive. Uh, and we're already getting calls. I think it's our fourth year doing it this year. This summer will be our fourth. And we already have people uh, registering. <laughs> so we... We're surprised at the uh, engagement of young people than that. And, of course, in this particular case, too, I should mention it's taught by a teacher. There's actually two teachers who are on site, a teacher who uh, used to be part of the Woodlawn community as a teacher and uh, has remained involved with us. Uh, They're a teacher in Connecticut, I believe. So it's curriculum-based. It has a teacher. There's a learning element. It's fun, but it's also going to be a little bit educational, which is kind of the uh, strength behind it.
3: Speaking of educational, this idea, and you mentioned this earlier in our discussion, I want to touch upon this again. The student leadership and legacy program, um, how important has that been with Woodlawn?
2: So that's a three-month program, Mm -hmm. and it partners with uh, the various schools in the community that are interested in having a a program to help young men and women uh, through mentorship develop strength in their own uh, right. There is a lot going on today with, with the, uh, the constant pressures of growing up today, or I think much more so than they were in years past, and it creates, a, to some extent, a, a little bit overload. So the Leadership Legacy Program is essentially an opportunity for us to bring the history of the notables uh, into a school talk about the different notables that the children pick from. So they actually pick a notable who's buried at Woodlawn, and they do a report on the notable, they write a report on the notable, and they fill in kind of the legacy of where they think their future can take them based on the research they did of the legacy of their uh, chosen legacy of of the, the notable buried at Woodlawn. This program really uh, only comes to the cemetery, uh, uh, I guess, one time, actually, where they go to the internment site. But we have a playbook, a structured curriculum book that was written by an educational consultant to guide them through that process I just described of developing their own presentation. And the teachers in the various schools, and I think we've been in about 30 or 40 schools so far, the teachers are the ones who drive the curriculum, and then Woodlawn becomes the site where they ultimately do come and go to their chosen uh, notable, the burial site of the notable. And then at the end, at the school, once again, they stand up before their peers and they give their presentation on what they researched and what they found and kind of give a commitment to where they see themselves in the future. Mm.
3: When you're talking about the work that is done with Woodlawn, you know, you talked about the women of greatness earlier in this discussion. Two other areas I wanted to touch upon as well. One of them is the uh, black and Latino men of greatness. Can you tell us a little bit about that? yeah
2: absolutely and And I think what you're referring to, which you can also see on our site, are the curriculum workbooks that we use with our field trips. so exactly. we're very interactive. You might say, well what'm going uh, how why would a field trip come to a cemetery? Well, what are they going to do? <laughs> well, the yellow bus is going to pull into the cemetery, and they're going to get off the yellow bus and get onto our trolley. Our trolley. Uh, is equipped with an audiovisual uh, system. So uh, there's four monitors within the trolley, and then a stepped-up audio system. To your point about uh, men of color, let's let's pick Miles Davis. Most of us have heard his music. He's interred at Woodlawn. That's his final resting place. So what would happen is in the uh, in the aspect of of uh, coming and taking a tour, a field trip, the students would get on. They would. The trolley starts headed towards the internment site of Miles Davis and up on the monitors and throughout the sound system of the trolley, you're going to hear Miles Davis performing. You're going to hear a short biography about Miles Davis and you're going to look at your workbook that we gave you and you can work through it in terms of uh, trying to read about a, a brief history about him. And then in this particular case, it asks the student to write down or draw a picture of their vision for their future. What's your passion? Uh, you know, maybe it's not playing a musical instrument, or, but maybe it is. So again, it's kind of creating this inspirational aspect, creating the uh, relevance of it in the context of an audiovisual impact, because as we all know today, uh, if it's not... Uh, you know, audio and visually stimulating, it's hard to keep people's attention. Mm-hmm. So the video and the audio really bring Miles Davis uh, back to life, so to speak, illuminate what he did during his career. And it makes an impact for them to uh, learn something about that individual that perhaps they never even knew before. As word scramble, word search, things like that in the workbooks. So we make it fun. We make it interesting, Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, like I said, nearly 2,000 uh, kids came through last year. We must be doing something right.
3: (laughs) Woodlawn, a silent city of immigrants. Would you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, this is an actually interesting thing. We were commissioned and asked by uh, Councilman Cohen, who's a big fan of us in our district, he uh, commissioned us to He challenged us to say, "I'd like to see a, a silent city of immigrants," a, book, uh, a workbook about the great immigrants uh, in our community and buried at Woodlawn, of course." So we took the challenge and we wrote a workbook on it, again, with the help of an educator and a curriculum. And probably two of the notable ones in there, as I mentioned earlier, is Celia Cruz. I mean she was a Cuban-born singer and she came to America and ultimately conquered the world as being come the queen of salsa. So it's a great story of accomplishment and overcoming. Uh, Dr. Noguchi is another one of my personal favorites. He uh, was an individual who spent a fair amount of time uh, in the United States after he left Japan. As a biochemist, he studied and tried to find a cure for yellow fever. Uh, and the Rockefeller Institute uh, is uh, was so tight with him in terms of his studies that they brought him to New York and ultimately buried him at Woodlawn. And at Woodlawn, annually, there's an event where Japanese uh, ambassadors and individuals come annually to the Naguchi burial site and we host a memorial service in his memory. So these types of things... Uh, I think one of the callers earlier mentioned, you know, paying your respects, bringing, uh, you know, whether it be flowers or just going to the gravesite. You know, we're big believers in that, of course, and we support that.
3: You know, the international significance of woodlawn is also shining through very clearly on, based on things like you just mentioned. I mean, again, most people probably would never even think of that.
2: Yeah, the international impact of Woodlawn, uh, you know, at we, we of course like to to believe, and and many back in the in the day uh, when cemeteries were more significant, we're one of the most famous cemeteries in the world. Uh, and that being said, of course, I think every cemetery is famous within any given community because within that community, individuals are buried in that cemetery, and that makes it famous. I you like to, I mean, I, as a cemeterian, I, I'm a big believer in that. But on an international basis. Our goal is to make sure that the uh, attention is brought to the things, like we've discussed in this conversation, that our approach to the relevance of Woodlawn is innovative. Our approach to workforce development is different. Our approach to our website and providing information to students about educational programs is unique, and I think that makes us something very different uh, on an international basis than what's happening across the world.
3: The role of volunteers with Woodlawn, what do they do?
2: So, obviously, uh, any good uh, nonprofit like Woodlawn is has to have volunteers, and we're fortunate enough to have a great many volunteers do a lot of research, genealogy research, studying the various individuals or the significance of the individuals through a series of workbooks. But... Volunteer, one of my favorite uh, volunteer stories is a woman who came to work for us and uh, started studying veterans' burials at Woodlawn. As I said earlier, we don't have a section dedicated to anything, so particularly, so there's not a veterans' section or a, uh, you know, a Catholic section or whatever. It's non-denominational, non-sectarian. But she started researching veterans' internment sites and started, at that time, a small-scale program uh, on Memorial Day to place a flag on the internment site of a veteran. She researched and came up, this was about eight years ago, uh, or nine years ago, she came up with a couple hundred. And every year she's continued this process, studying, researching. Every year we've been placing the flags on these internment sites on Memorial Day. And this last year, We placed over 8,000 flags uh, on the veterans' graves on Memorial Day, all initiated and driven by this volunteer effort. And some of the people who, of course, placed those flags include Boy Scouts and volunteers who find that significant. And we do it in a really interesting manner. You know, it's 400 acres. It's not that simple. Well, the entire cemetery is over, uh, uh, has been overlaid with a geographic information system, GIS, and we use the GIS mapping to actually give individuals the capability to directly go to the internment site uh, with a map in their hand and a photograph of the internment site in their hand, and then they know they're right in front of it and they place the flag.
3: Mm. So making use of that technology. Yep. Very smart as well. The Arboretum. Let's close our discussion talking about
2: that. So the trees at Woodlawn are uh, magnificent. There are over 6,000 of them. They're very, in many cases, very, very large in and, and scale. And we, uh, about three, four years ago up until that point, I mean, we knew we had a lot of trees. We certainly have a lot of people who knew what certain ones were but there really wasn't any particular methodology of assessing their, uh, their health and assessing uh, their, the dynamic nature of their uh, particular species. So we applied for a grant through the uh, conservancy, uh, through the Department of Environmental Conservation, to get those trees identified. And we received that grant money, and then we awarded it to a company that went through the entire cemetery and did just that assessed all 6,200 trees, uh, notating their species, notating their health, notating if they needed some particular pruning, notating if they were in decline or significant decline, also notating their proximity uh, to the monuments and mausoleums around them. So that was step one. Once we did that identification, we found that we had uh, over 150 unique species, and to get Arboretum status, to apply for Arboretum status, you need over 125 species, I believe is the number. We hit it, we applied, we became a level two Arboretum. And that gives us the opportunity to apply for more funding. Uh, We're an urban forest. Uh, The Bronx, uh, as well as all the boroughs, of course, we all know, there's a great deal of uh, congestion. There's a great deal of buildings. Uh, There's a, a high level of proximity of those buildings next to each other where are the trees? Where, where are they going to go? And how are we going to plant new ones? And what's the significant and, uh, significance environmentally of those trees? Well, carbon sequestration, oxygen uh, production, there's a lot of environmental benefit to the health of those trees. And we've got 6,200 of them spread out in an urban forest. We're gonna, we take care of them. So that's significant to us and the impact of how it affects the Bronx. And Woodlawn's role as a cemetery uh, is additionally that one of being an urban forest.
3: The voice of Mitch Rose, who's president, chief executive officer, trustee of the Woodlawn Cemetery and Conservancy in the Bronx. Very, very comprehensive discussion here, woodlawn.org, the uh, website. Mitch, thank you very much for joining us on our program.
2: Thank you so much for
3: having me. I enjoyed it. Wonderful discussion covered so many different areas, certainly the best continued with your work. Yes, Duke Ellington will take us out appropriately enough on this Sunday morning and take the A-Train. Sports Edge follows our top of the hour update and Ed Randall's Talking Baseball is along after our 9 o'clock update. We'll see you between 6 and 8 o'clock next Sunday morning here on The Fan.